0: Good. Okay. Well, let's jump in to the book of Luke. We're going to be in uh, chapter 16, verse 14. So if you'd open there with me, it'd be great. Um, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll pass one to you. And in that particular Bible, it's page 748 that we're looking on. Page 748, Luke 16, verse 14. And while you're turning there, let me, uh, let me just pray for us. God, um, thank you for all that you're doing uh, in this community. We thank you for uh, how you continue to supply for our needs in every direction um, you are building your church, we see that very clearly and, and we're so blessed um, to be a part of that process and, and we pray Lord that continually you would, um, you would encourage us and help us to be used by you in whatever way that uh, we've been called to be used. We, we, uh, we all bring something to this table, we bring a gift and you want to work through us to advance your gospel and so we're asking that you would uh, make that clear to us, uh, uh, each one of us, that we, we'd all feel like we're on, on the team playing together uh, and serving you. And uh, I pray for our children, Lord, I ask that you would strengthen them during this time as they gather, uh, bring the gospel to bear on their lives, even as they can only understand it to a certain degree, depending on their age level and their ability. Um, We we pray that you would uh, maximize what they can understand of who you are and what you've done in this world, and how much you love them, and how much you're for them, and and how much they need you because of sin. Lord, I just pray that those truths would be woven deep into the fabric of their beings, their little beings today as they work together, and be with Tiffany and and Lily as they serve, and the rest of the teachers as they serve. And uh, we pray for Annabelle, Lord, that you would bless this little girl who's been uh, brought into our community, that you would strengthen her and grow her, keep her safe, and we give you praise for... Um, a healthy delivery and, and just her presence in our midst. And we ask your hand be upon their parents, her parents as well. And uh, Lord, we pray for Andrew as he comes back, that you would uh, bless him. Uh, I know he's very excited to be back and misses us tremendously, and we miss him. And we pray, Lord, that as he comes back, he would be bringing just a, a, a renewed energy and push um, for ministry. And we ask that, um, uh, that, that, that you would just very much be in that and encouraging us and him in that process. Now, Lord, we open up the scripture and and we pray for your hand to be upon us as we we seek to understand, uh, again, a a bit of a challenging passage this morning. Um, Ask your hand be upon us, your Holy Spirit with us, as you've been so faithfully already today, to guide us and lead us and and teach us the things that you would want us to know, that we might serve you better, we might bless the people around us more, and we might bring you more glory. In Christ's name, amen. 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 All right. Luke 16, starting in uh, verse 14, a little bit of background here. Last week uh, in the passage previous to this one, we talked about taking on God's generosity. So understanding how generous God has been towards us and really seeing that and then uh, absorbing that into our being and then turning around and being generous in the same way towards the people that we encounter, the people that God's brought into our lives. So it's like absorbing God's generosity and then dispensing that generosity to others. And there was a little bit of a twist in last week's passage that I want to remind us of, and that is that we're supposed to go after this being generous towards other, others thing um, with the same kind of foresight and shrewdness and intensity that people in the world go after business or whatever it is that they, they hunger after. Like a lot of times we think, Well, you know, we're the mercy people. Yeah, you just kind of dispense mercy as you're able to, and you're kind of casual about it. But in this last week's text, Jesus called us to be shrewd, to have foresight, to be intentional about how we dispense mercy to the people around us, to love them with that same kind of intensity that we often apply to the other areas of our lives, whether it be corporately, you know, we might. um, you know, I talked last week about, uh, you know, an institution, let's say if they're making airplanes, you know, they have to be very careful about what they do because if they do something wrong, then the plane will crash and people will die. And so there's a, there's a built-in intensity and, 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 and just sort of focus around what they do. And there should be nothing less for the church. As we seek about going about to, to bring the gospel to bear on the world around us, we should have that same kind of intensity. We talked about the individual as well. Um, You know, some of us are really good at sitting down and thinking ahead into the future uh, about our checkbook and what we're going to do with it and how we're going to prepare ourselves for the future or organizing our lives or working on our home or whatever it is. Some of us are really good at those things. That same kind of intensity should be brought to um, the call that's upon each of us individually to be generous towards the people around us, to love the, our neighbors, to love them you know, with foresight and shrewdness, to, to think about ways that we could love them better and to dispense the generosity of God to them. So that was really the parable that we looked at last week and, and the message. Now, in this week, there's a response to that parable by the Pharisees. Verse 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money heard all these things, and they ridiculed him, that is, Jesus. The word literally means they turned up their noses at him. And it's the same word that was used of the people who walked by Jesus when he was hanging on the cross. They, ridiculed, they turned up their noses to him as he died there on the cross. Um, and why did they do that? It says because they were lovers of money. They were trying to love God and love their money at the same time. And they couldn't do both. Verse 13, back up a little bit. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So we talked last week about how impossible it is to have two masters, and the conflict and the confusion that causes in life. And Jesus is is, is saying this, and the Pharisees are reacting because that's who they are. They're caught in that bind, in that confusion, loving both. Verse 15, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That's a strong word. It really has to do with odor and, and stench and smell, and if you off, bring an offering to God and it's an abomination, it's a rotten stinking offering that wafts its way up to heaven. That's the idea behind the word abomination. The law and the prophets, he goes on to say, verse 16, were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now, a lot going on in those three little verses. Um, first of all, the Pharisees are doing just enough to give the appearance of loving God. Probably it refers to their giving alms to the poor. That would have been the typical understanding. So that they'd be exalted by others. So that the people around them would say, oh, look at them, aren't they religious people? Aren't they doing good things and doing the right things? So they were doing just enough, um, but they're not being faithful in the deeper kind of sense when nobody's looking with what they have. They're not being faithful in that deeper kind of sense. And this is is the abomination. It stinks. That hypocrisy stinks before God. Then Jesus talks about this law, and the prophets were until John, uh, but now the kingdom, and everybody tries to enter it by force. Um, And and what is is he talking about there? Well, first of all, there's there's a difficult translation issue that I just want to point out, and this is probably in your Bible already. In verse 16, um, it says, uh, and everyone forces his way into it, probably in in my humble opinion and that of many uh, not-so-humble opinions of wise scholars, um, probably the better translation there is everyone is forcefully urged into it. Everyone is forcefully urged into it. So you see that in your note, if you have uh, a Bible with notes in it, that an alternate uh, way to translate that would be everyone is forcefully urged into it. In other words, people are calling people to come into the kingdom, and they're they're urging them with an intensity and sort of a, a, a ferociousness to come in, to the kingdom because um, it's very important. Now, what's going on here in the in these verses? What's it about? So let me try to, let me see if, if, if I can unpack it for myself and for us here uh, just briefly. First of all, the Pharisees are living by the law, right? We've talked about that. They're living by the law. They're trying to make sure they uphold the law so they look good to the people around them. Um, but something new is going on uh, since John, you sort of live by the law, Uh The Law and the Prophets, and so it was sort of about following guidelines, although at the end of the day, relationship with God was never just about the rules, it was about relationship with Him. You look at King David back in the Old Testament, and the sweetness of his communion with God far surpassed the simple following of rules and regulations. But nonetheless, there's more of a sense of that in the Old Testament. So uh, up until that time, up until John, John the Baptist, the one who proclaims that Jesus is coming, marks a, a shift in history, a major shift in history. Up until that time, it was all about the law and the prophets. But now, the kingdom of God is being ushered in by Jesus. The kingdom of God is being ushered in by Jesus. And the goal in the kingdom of God is not just to be the, le- the best law abider, okay, Not to be the best one at following the rules. That's not the goal, merely, of the kingdom of God. Uh, In the kingdom of God, um, Jesus takes care of the requirements of the law so that the focus can be on relationship with God. So that's why the title of this sermon, Relationship Over Regulation. So the Pharisees were focusing on just keeping up with the regulations. Jesus pushes it to another level. He says, what's ultimately always supposed to happen is that you are to live in this new kingdom and I am your king and you are a child of the kingdom and we have a a, a dynamic relationship together and we're and I want to do life with you and I want to lead you as your king and be lord over your life and I have good plans for you and I love you and I want you to be in my presence and in fact, I love you so much that this whole law situation where you've broken the law and so you're far from God, I've taken, as your good king, I've taken care of that for you. I went to the cross to spend my life on that cross to take care of the punishment that was on you so that you could be reconciled to God. I'm your good king. I want you in my kingdom. I love you. That's the aura, the environment of the kingdom of God rather than just merely the dry following of rules and regulations. And that's the big shift that's now accentuated with the coming of John and then, of course, the ministry of Jesus Christ. And the Pharisees have not clued into it. They're still trying to meet the regulations one by one and make sure that they take care of the law. Now we're going to come back to this idea of relationship more than regulations. Okay, so hold on to that for a minute. But let's read our last verse, verse 18. Now it feels like this comes out of nowhere, but um, if we do our job well today, I think we'll be able to see how this verse even is connected. It's actually become sort of an illustration for this whole relationship over regulations idea, verse eighteen: Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, even just reading that, I can feel how left fieldish that sounds uh, in connection with the other verses. But uh, really, what Jesus is doing here is bringing an illustration about this relationship over regulations idea. So. Let's pick this apart a little bit. The first thing we're going to do, um, if you could put up the the next slide, just relationship over regulations, we're going to talk about that with respect to God, and then we're going to talk about it in marriage, used as kind of an illustration there. So relationship over regulations with God, and then in marriage. And it's important in marriage for itself, but it's also important in marriage because marriage becomes an illustration of a picture of the relationship that we have with God. Okay. Okay. First of all, with God, relationship over regulations. Now, have you ever had um, an acquaintance or maybe somebody in your extended family? I think this happens sometimes. Or somebody with whom you do business or maybe a, a coworker or somebody like this who follows all the customs of proper human interaction. If you were try to fault them, you couldn't cuz they always they always fall they always do the right thing. They follow the proper customs of human interaction. But underneath it all, in the veneer of niceness and sweetness and pleasantness, you're not sure if they really care about you that much. Anybody, you have somebody, in, we're all kind of that person sometimes, right? Just to be honest, I know we all are. Um, and then some people, you maybe have some, you know, you kind of wonder, man, we get along here, but boy, if we were stranded on an island, you know, I'd watch my back, right? That kind of, that kind of uh, on the outside. Um, all the things are done right. But underneath, there's this sense of, um, do they really care? Do they really love? Do they, do they really um, have concern for who I, for who I am? And, and you just wonder, well, the Pharisees are acting this way with God, really. They're doing the right things. They're conforming to the norms of how you're supposed to behave. But they're just doing it outwardly in much the same way that we handle our taxes, right? When you're sitting down doing your taxes... You know, you're not thinking about the IRS people and how much you love them, and you want to do well by them, generally speaking. And we sort of accept that that's okay with t- taxes. Um, you know, maybe in some greater world it's not. We would actually do our taxes with love in our hearts for the IRS people uh, and, and their job. But when we're doing our taxes, we're trying to find every possible um, exemption that we can and take advantage of, and that's just the way we do taxes, right? But we don't do relationships that way, do we? And the Pharisees have taken that approach with God. It's, it's sort of like, what's the minimum that I can do uh, in this relationship so that it looks like I'm doing everything on, right on the outside without really worrying about what's going on in the inside, without really know, considering whether or not I, I, I actually love God. They've reduced religion. They have actually make it religion. They've reduced it to rules, and then they've sought to do the very minimum of what they would need to do. they stripped the relationship out of it. They stripped the relationship component completely out of their relationship with God and reduced it merely to regulations. Now, it was never supposed to be like that, even in the Old Testament. Again, I appeal to the Psalms and King David and just read how King David relates to God, and there is a sweet relationship there that is not about regulations. It was never supposed to be that way, just about following rules and regulations. It was never supposed to be like that. But um, even less so now in the New Testament, the Law and the Prophets, verse 16, were until John, since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone uh, is forcefully urged into it. Now, even more so, the king is here on earth and present in body, a person with whom you can relate and be called into the kingdom. So we've got this incredible intensification of the relationship aspect. Um, and, and, and so God doesn't want people who merely comply with his regulations. That's not why Jesus came to earth, right? To, to raise up a people who will comply with the regulations that he's given. That's not why Jesus came and did all he did. He did to call us into that. He came to call us into that relationship with him to, to make us children of the king, children of the kingdom who live day in and day out, um, who have this sort of um, sweet communion with God and relationship with God. That's what Jesus is looking for, not simply what the Pharisees manifest. And if we're really honest, I think we do too at times, is that, okay, uh, I'm, I'm just complying with the regulations. Now, you know, we, it's easy to think about sort of the pagan types who are running far from God and, and how they're far from God and how they're missing out on the relationship that God wants with them because they're scoff laws and they're doing whatever they want and they're, they're, they're just running from God. It's easy to think about those people and say, wow, they're far from God. But what this text points out, and many of the other texts, in fact, just the chapter preceding this one, is that the people who are addicted to regulation compliance are also far from God. You see that? In fact, the great illustration of this is the parable of the prodigal son. Right? You had the son who ran away and, and took advantage of his father, but then you have the son who stays home And complies with all the regulations and does everything right, supposedly. And at the end of the story, you realize that both of them are far from God. The older brother and the younger brother have missed out. The both of them. And Jesus came to save those people too. And then we gather together together as the church, because we are the church already. And and maybe we we were the younger brothers at some point, Um, and then we we, we found grace and mercy and Jesus Christ and forgiveness for our sins. And then, without us really realizing it, we've morphed into the older brother, oftentimes. Because it's just sort of, there's this thing bent in the human psyche that wants to please and wants to comply and wants to earn. And so we have this tendency to continue to, to move into that zone and to become like the older brother, to, to try to earn our relationship with God, to try to please God, to become that, that older brother. And you might be sitting there and you ask yourself, and Je- by the way, Jesus came to save those people, too, from addiction to regulation compliance. And you might ask yourself, well, how do I know if I've slipped over? How do I know if I'm one of those, if I'm an older brother? And let me suggest two thoughts. I'm sure there are many thoughts on this. But one of the ways that you discover that is you you struggle, on the one hand, with a kind of a self-loathing. Because... If you're all about complying with the regulations, then what inevitably happens is you've got this incredible standard in front of you. And you can never fully meet it. And when you don't meet it, you hate yourself. You hate the fact that you can't live up to what you're supposed to be doing. And so if you struggle from time to time, with that sense of self-loathing and that, and I think all of us actually do, right? Then that's an indicator that on some level you're living under the desire to comply to meet the regulations. And when you can't do it, you must be terrible. And so that's why that self-loathing comes in. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, you tend to be fairly judgmental towards others. So you toggle back and forth between the self-loathing and judgmentalism towards others. Why? Because in those areas where you do live up to the standard, you can't believe that other people don't. Right? I can do this. I'm doing this well. um, But how come the rest of you are not keeping up with me? Right? And so there ends up being this sort of toggle between, and, and I think all of us struggle with this, between oh, I've fallen so short, I can't do it, I'm terrible, I messed up, I'm worthless, to, oh, how come you people can't do this, I can do this? And and you just toggle between those. And that's clear indication that you are not living by gospel. You are living by regulation, meeting the regulations. When that's happening, it's clear indication that you are not living by the gospel of grace, but you are living by the attempt to meet regulations. And what can you do about it? Well... Be urged in by the good news. That's the answer. Verse 16. Be urged in by the good news. Stop trying to comply with the regulations and rest in the fact that Jesus Christ complied with all the regulations on your behalf. And you don't have to do it. Done. This is scandalous sounding, by the way. It seems too good to be true. But it is. This is the gospel. No longer do we need to live a life where we're attempting to comply with the standards and the expectations in order to win favor and earn a place with God. That's done. Jesus has already done it. And it's out of the receiving of that grace, then, that we do in fact change. And we start to comply with the regulations, we start to live them out. Um, because the law is not to be passed away, it's just that it's no longer the means. the transformation that we seek. All right, so relationship over regulation with God. That's the first part. Now, how does this whole marriage thing come into being with this? Marriage is kind of a case study in this whole deal, this this relationship and regulations thing. Marriage is kind of a case study in this. Everyone is arguing um, over what's legal, Uh, All the different sects and communities in Jesus' day, they're arguing over what's legal with respect to marriage. Can I get a divorce if I do this? Can I get a divorce if I do this? What if I do this? Should I get a divorce? And this person got a divorce, and so they shouldn't get a divorce. And they're just arguing about what are the regulations around marriage and divorce? See, we're back into this question. What are the regulations? And Jesus comes crashing into that, and he says, marriage is not about minimum regulation compliance. It's not about complying with the least thing. It's about relationship. It's it's, it's not about what you can get away with, um, but it's about a covenant relationship that is meant to be uh, a, a whole different level of living. That's why Jesus, in this particular text, I think, doesn't talk about the exceptions. Because in another text, in Matthew, he talks about where there's an exception, where divorce is okay. In this one, it's just straight out. And the reason is because he's calling them to the fundamental core truth And that is that this marriage is a covenant relationship. Don't run around trying to figure out what the minimum regulations are for you to remain in it. Okay? That's why Jesus talks in this way, and Luke highlights it in the way that he does. Um, Marriage is relationship. In fact, it's a picture of the relationship with God. And whenever marriage becomes, what can I get away with? The battle's over. You've lost. Because that's not what it's supposed to... you know, doing your taxes, you know, if I do this, am I, am I, am I doing the minimal amount in order to, to maintain what needs to be maintained in this relationship? Somebody said to me when, when, when we were younger and just getting married and talking about what marriage was, I don't remember the context, but this has stuck with me. And if you've been in marriage counseling with me, you've heard me say it 50 times already. Um, Marriage is not a 50-50 proposition. In other words, you don't bring 50% and 50% and that equals 100% for a marriage. You bring 100% and then the other person brings 100% and that's how it works. And whenever, you, whenever a marriage, I see this over and over again, whenever a marriage descends into that, what is the 50% that I'm bringing and they're not bringing their 50% so we don't have 100%, that's when the marriage starts to decay because you're no longer just bringing everything you have to it. You're you're trying to calculate what's my portion. What's the minimum regulation, the minimum thing that I can bring to it? And Jesus is saying, don't don't approach marriage in that way, just trying to figure out what the lowest common denominator is. Approach marriage as if this is a covenant relationship, and you're going to dive in with both feet, and you're going to give everything that you have to it, and you're not going to sit around and say, they're not doing their 50%. You're going to say, always, instead... What's my, the next part of my 100% that I can give? And I'll tell you that in my marriage with Jody, I would say the best times have been identifiably when we're both bringing 100% to the table and just throwing everything we have at it. And she use, almost always is. It's usually me who slips into the 50% model, and I have to ch- check myself on that, um, which is good that I do pre-marriage counseling because it always checks me and makes sure that I'm not doing that. Um, so... So, so bringing 100% giving all to it, that's the nature of relationship. It's not minimum regulation. Now, within that framework, though, um, it says the law is not going to pass away. We still need guidelines to be able to uh, address what we're doing. Verse 17 is amazing to me. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. You realize that? At this ground that we're standing on, everything you see, it is more, um, it is more transient than the word of God. That's powerful. What does that mean for all the things that God says? And how trustworthy and confident you can be in them. Things about who you are, chosen adopted, beloved child of God, redeemed child of God. That statement this is saying is more um, solid and stable than the ground that you're standing on. Heaven and earth could pass away, but the word of God will not. Think on that one this afternoon for a little while. Um, But... Um, That applies in this particular situation because we do have relational guidelines within marriage. Yes, marriage is a covenant relationship, and that's the core of it, but we have guidelines about that. Now, I know big news on marriage this week, right, in the news. uh, The Supreme Court rulings came out, and so here I am reading this and thinking, wow, what do we do with this? Um, And Jesus is not speaking to the issue of homosexuality in this particular text, um, homosexual marriage is not on the table in Jesus' day, um, and it's not the main focus of this text at all. So, But let me just t- take a little aside and just say a couple of words on this. Um, just a few words in response. Here's the tone in which I'm hoping that we would approach this issue, and I'm striving to in, in my own life. First of all, I, we are first and foremost about Jesus Christ. That is the key and the center of everything that we're trying to do as a community. That is where we want to continually pull the conversation back to is the person of Jesus Christ. Who he is, what he has said, what he has done, and what impact that can have on your life. That is the key and the center of where we are and who we are as a church. And We don't want to lose that to get caught up in whatever hot button issue may be on the table in the current season. And when everyone who comes to Jesus ends up rethinking their sexuality, we need to put that out there as well. Because every single one of us is sexually broken in some way. It's part of the sin of who we are And we all have to rethink what sex is in relation to who Jesus Christ is. Now, with respect to homosexuality, um, I have taken time in our preaching on Romans 1, where it is in the text, it's not in this text, I've taken time in that sermon, to uh, enough time to really sort of uh, open up the issue and talk about it a little bit more fully and with the amount of time that's needed to talk about it. And in that sermon, and you can find it online, um, what was really being attempted there was to be faithful to the biblical text, to the biblical teaching, to, to look at the biblical teaching and, and, and understand it on its own terms, and then at the same time to acknowledge that the church in general has been wo- has woefully mishandled this issue. Um, throughout the ages, that we have, we, have, we have not done a good job of, of handling the issue of, of homosexuality um, as a church. And just to kind of wrap this up, I, I just want to say, and I hope we can approach it in this tone, that I am thankful and excited to be a part of a community that wants to be faithful to God and faithful to people and to sit in what is oftentimes the messiness of that and to process through and to struggle through and to try and figure out how the gospel comes to bear on every aspect and issue of how we're living. So uh, I hope that you are in, uh, in wanting to take that journey because it's going to be a journey that no matter what side you fall on with respect to this issue, um, it's going to be challenging at times. Um, but it's one that we need to embrace and move forward on. So um, that's what I'm going to say on that for now. If you want to hear uh, a biblical exposition of the topic, go to Romans 1, and we'll take a, we'll take a look at that um, that way. Okay. Now the, back to this text. We're talking about um, we're talking about not not that particular issue, uh, but we're talking about in the meantime, we, there's plenty to do. There's plenty that we have to do to improve marriage in the traditional sense between a man and a woman. First, we talked about the 100%, 100%. Second, um, we have to grapple with the force of the commitment, which is what Jesus is really getting at in this text. The force of the commitment. Um, this is the key. Uh, how strong is that commitment and that relationship? This is the key. This is what Jesus is, is doing in mentioning um, divorce here. He's bringing up this idea of the key of, 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 of marriage being that commitment. Now... Let me just cut to the chase. We haven't tackled this one either. Lots of interesting things to tackle today. Um, we haven't tackled this one either, and that is the teaching on divorce, which is really what, what the text brings up. It's the main thrust of it. And let me just cut to the chase on this one. There are three views on divorce in the Bible that are articulated. First of all, there is this idea that a divorce is okay. Um, um, this is not in the Scripture so much, but it's, it's, it's touched upon what's called the no-fault view, that you can get a divorce whenever you want one, okay? So that was being debated during Jesus' day. Would that be okay? No-fault divorce. The second one is divorce is allowable with in certain situations. There are certain exceptions that uh, allow divorce, divorce to occur. And then the third view is that there's no divorce at all. So you have no-fault divorce. You could, somebody could get a divorce whenever they want. You have... Um, the second one, which is divorce in only a few cases where there are exceptions. And then the third one is no divorce at all. There's ne- divorce is never permitted, never allowed. And again, the whole thing here is about reinforcing this idea that marriage is a covenant relationship. And that's a picture then of our relationship with God. So, most see that there are two exceptions. Matthew 19, 9. Um, In cases where there's adultery, the divorce is is then um, allowable. It doesn't have to happen, but it's acceptable. And then secondly, in 1 Corinthians 7, um, where there's a believer and a non-believer who are married together, if the non-believer decides to leave the marriage, in that case, divorce would be acceptable. So those are the two biblical exceptions where divorce is permissible, um, most scholars see, and, and that's how I see it as well. Uh, now, a third one can be added to that, which is sort of the, the one that you add by logic, which is if there's an abuse going on in the relationship, then just by reason, um, somebody you know, needs to separate, uh, and, and then at that point, some of the other, other parts apply. So um, if there's no-fault divorce, though, The Bible does say in 1 Corinthians 7, 11, and I'm not going to go to all these texts, but you can ask me for them afterwards or write them down as I'm I'm talking. If a no-fault divorce happens, in other words, a divorce where people just say, we don't like each other, we're going to just leave and, and not be married anymore, then in that case, the scripture does advise and give the guideline that you should remain unmarried at that point. But in the other two cases, that's not the assumption that you would remain unmarried. So, on one level, that's the standard. That's the regulation, so to speak. And nobody's heart should want anything else than that. Together we should be fighting tooth and nail to uphold, uh, to uphold that particular view of, um, of marriage and the, 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 the concreteness of the covenant. Um, what does it say? It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. At the same time, As a community, we've got to acknowledge that life is messy. And if divorce happens, we need to follow the guidelines set out in Scripture, number one. But we also need to to make sure that we don't treat divorce as the unforgivable sin. Because it's not. There is an unforgivable sin in the Bible, and that is rejecting the Holy Spirit ministrations to you, with respect to coming to faith particularly. But this is not that sin. Divorce is not that sin. And sometimes we have treated people in that way um, to make it seem like you have the the scarlet letter for the rest of your life um, because you have gone through divorce. Now, that's not to take anything away from, again, fighting tooth and nail to uphold the guidelines that are given to us in Scripture. But it is to say that we need to keep it in the proper framework. Some of us, I'm guessing and thinking, have been laboring under a long-standing kind of guilt with respect to divorce. Because in a community like this, you've got people who have been divorced, you've got people who um, are struggling, you've got all kinds of things. And and some of us have been laboring, I'm guessing, under a long-standing guilt because maybe you were divorced and now it's a mess and you don't know how to solve it, you don't know what you're supposed to do next Um, You don't know what step to take next and all of that. And I want to remind us that I want to ask you this question, does Jesus forgive? Does Jesus forgive? And we know the answer to that question is yes, right? We know the answer to that question is yes. Does Jesus forgive? Yes, he does. And the the process is like the process it always is, is to acknowledge Sin, to repent of sin, and then to receive the forgiveness of God that comes through Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we're free on the other side. We're free. We don't need to continually beat ourselves up and labor under that sense of guilt. Now let's not confuse that with what we, what actions we take, what we do next. There are there are guidelines, and in some cases it's best not to remarry. If it was a no no fault kind of a thing, in some cases the exceptions apply, and remarriage is 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 perfectly acceptable. In some cases, um, don't fit really into any of those categories because life is so messy, and the way we get into these things and the way we get out of them sometimes is so complicated that there's multiple layers. And in those cases, what we have to do is to walk through them, taking them individually, prayerfully, looking at Scripture and asking what is the best solution and doing our best with it and under the umbrella of God's grace and His freedom that comes, knowing that in no case is it about punishment. Whatever the guidelines are, it's not about punishment, but it's about upholding God's will. And at the end of the day, It's about receiving and understanding that you are forgiven. And that's simply the grace that we all need, right? We all need that grace in whatever circumstance that we find ourselves in. uh, Because it's about that relationship, ultimately, and not about the regulation. Some of you know I was sent out an email. I'm going to be traveling to Rwanda in a few weeks. And there I'm going to be teaching with the free church pastors in Rwanda, and there's going to be two of us going through Second um, Timothy. And when I was thinking about this, this sense of guilt and, and the and the and the the freedom that some of us carry around, um, been studying Two Timothy two, it says, "You then, my child, and this is the verse I've been sitting with today, um, especially, and um, I'm going to take with me. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus." Do we understand how radical that phrase is? Be strengthened by the grace. That in receiving God's grace, it's not just a static thing, but it literally strengthens us to move forward. And that's what we want to sit in together. And those of us who have struggled with divorce, and those of us who have not struggled with divorce, but with other sins, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We all need to stop tr- trying to justify ourselves like the Pharisees were doing and let God do the justifying and to live in that freedom. I don't know if you ever get this. I, I have this. There are certain people where I get around, and maybe it's because they're experts in one particular field where I feel like I have to impress them. You know that confining feeling when you get around those people? Let's just say for me, I get around some really fast cyclist, right? And I have, to, I have to try to fit into the conversation. I did this ride, or I, I achieved this rank on Strava, or whatever, you know, like I have to sort of you know, fit and you, you know the pressure that that is to live like that. And then there are times when I walk into those relationships and I, and I remember, and I go, you know what? I'm not going to impress anybody. I'm not going to try. And the freedom that comes with that. And Jesus is saying, I want you to live with me in that way. I want you to stop trying to justify yourself as the Pharisees did. And I want you to rest and be strengthened by my grace. That's his call on every one of us this morning. And God, we ask that... The freedom that comes with laying down, the striving, the trying, the justifying, that cool, refreshing drink that comes from resting in your grace and forgiveness. We're asking this morning that that would be ours as we gather here together. Those of us who battle self-loathing because we never measure up, help us to put it down. Those of us who struggle against judgmentalism because the other people around us don't do what we do, help us to put it down. And help us to reside in the grace that is yours for us in Jesus Christ, freely given to be strengthened by it and to live out of it the life that you've called us to live. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.